Hello, it is 10 a.m. in New York, 4 p.m. in Johannesburg, and 9 p.m. in Bangkok. Welcome to In Transit with Sunday Bean. I'm an intercultural strategist, transformation facilitator, and solution-oriented coach. And I'm actually really in transition right now as I sit in a temporary apartment as we just landed in Switzerland. And in addition to being in transition, I am on a mission to help you adapt and succeed through any life transition. One thing I've realized throughout the years is that you never know who will walk into your life and completely change it. I just had this conversation with one of my sons this morning about the importance of relationships and mentorship. And what started as a simple, informative one and a half hour workshop turned into a year and a half mentorship. And it has been transformational for me. And I don't mean transformational in a sense of you go to bed a caterpillar and you wake up a butterfly. I'm talking about a slow one, one that is cell by cell, one by one, and is still ongoing and so much further to go. So it is my absolute heartfelt pleasure to have my mentor in equity-centered leadership here today and author of a recent hit, the anti-racist business book, Trudy LeBron. Welcome to In Transit today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. It's been so incredible to get to know you and to watch your journey and the impact that you're having on so many people's lives. I'm just so excited about the work you're doing because it is literally changing the trajectory in which we do business and specifically for me when I watch the coaching industry. So it's, it's so amazing to watch you walk with integrity and live everything that you teach. So before I get into more with you, Trudy, I'm going to say more for our audience who isn't as familiar with your work. Trudy LeBron is the CEO of Script Flip LLC and a creator of the Institute of Equity-Centered Coaching. By the time Trudy was 16, she had two children and had dropped out of high school. As you can imagine, she says all odds were against her, but that is not the case. Trudy today runs a million-dollar coaching and consulting firm helping entrepreneurs and coaches build anti-racist businesses and become equity-centered coaches, and as well as leaders, through her certification programs, consulting packages, and executive coaching. Trudy holds a BA in theater, a master of science and psychology, and is currently ABD in a PhD program in social psychology. Needless to say, Trudy is the real deal. So Trudy, it's so wonderful um, for us to connect. It's been a few months since we've yeah, spoken. Yeah. I have mentioned this to you before, but I want to mention it to the audience as well. It's kind of a behind the scenes thing that happened for me when we started working together. And it says something about this idea of transformation. Um, when I started working with you, it was originally around coaching, right? In terms of how to show up during this crisis. And then mm-hmm. I did what was called AIM. It was a six month program where we, we dissected whiteness, we looked at liberatory leadership, we looked at you know, how to show up more equity-centered in, in our work, and then you and I end up working one-to-one. Yeah. But I don't know if I shared this with you, but when we were doing AIM, I was in a very old mode of like show up to class, ready to learn. You know, I wanted to study. I wanted to like learn mm-hmm. the material. <laughs> it's like, you know, we're not going fast enough. How, you know, what can I memorize? Let me get the good grade. I just noticed that that impatience 
um, not, not, not strongly, but I noticed something quiet inside of me. Um, and then, you know, that's something that you did talk about in our work together. And what dropped for me during that first phase was the importance of this work being embodied. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not in your head. It's like in your cells, it's in your heart, it's in your body. And that was a totally different kind of learning. I think I was finally ready for that. And that has transformed also how I show up for my own clients, giving myself permission and helping them create space for that more embodied, slower, less cognitive learning. So I just wanted to share that with you. Um, that's where that transformation began with me, but your work is about transformation. I'm going to read an excerpt from your book. You said the solution is that we become anti-racist leaders, entrepreneurs, executives, coaches, service providers, workers, and creators. It's that we see our work as a piece of the puzzle to creating a more equitable world, a world where a person's life outcomes are no longer statistically predictable by their race and their zip code. It requires a transformation of the way we do business. So Trudy, how did you go from your childhood upbringing to being someone transformational in the business space and coaching space? I think for me, it was being raised in a, in a home where my mom was very justice oriented and worked in nonprofits. And I was literally raised in nonprofits. I would go to work with my mom. I would take all the summer camp programs and, you know, like all the after school programs and literally like every program um, that this agency offered, I kind of was raised through it. And I didn't know anyone who had their own business. I only knew people who worked in businesses and who were like leaders in nonprofit spaces. That was like in like teachers. I was the only people I knew. Um, And so I grew up thinking that I would be, you know, probably work in the nonprofit world. And I did for a long time. Um, And I really started to bump up against my dreams, honestly, right? Like Mm -hmm. I had, my mom used to pick on me all the time because she would say that I had a lobster appetite and a fish stick budget (laughs) because we were, we were, we grew up, you know, like lower, like working class uh, people, um, income and stable at times, you know, all kinds of things. And so, um, but I wanted a big life. Like I wanted Mm -hmm. to travel I wanted to have nice things. I wanted to dress in like fancy clothes. Like I just, I wanted to eat at fancy restaurants. I don't know where those things came from. Probably just TV. I didn't know people Mm -hmm. were doing it. Um, And then the reality of, you know, being, working in nonprofits, working for very little and Mm -hmm. realizing that, you know, I had invested all this time in this education, which was the thing that I was betting on was Mm going to, pull me out of poverty, right? I had these two kids, like, you know, that was, if you grew up in the eighties, you were sold the the tale that, Mm -hmm. you know, you just graduate from high school, go to college and everything's going to be okay. Right. Um, And I just was like, oh, that's not true. Like it's not. Um, And so I had to start to learn to make money on the side to supplement Mm -hmm. my income. And so you know, when I was in college, that looked like being a teaching artist and driving all around the state and teaching theater classes. And then when I was in, um, you know, working in nonprofits and had accumulated 
a good degree of experience and education. It was, you know, consulting and going into places and, and training. Um, and I started to realize how much money people were actually making who mm-hmm. were successful in consulting and training. Mm-hmm. And so I started listening to podcasts and, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about lifestyle design. And this is like mid 2000s where people are like blogging a lot mm-hmm. and podcasting is like becoming popular. Um, and being exposed to a whole world of entrepreneurship, of online business, of personal development, all this, all these things. And, and realizing a couple of really important, two really important things. One, that, that the world of online business and personal development was really incredibly innovative and aligned in terms of the things that I wanted for my life, but really um, missing some critical components around justice and equity, things that I had been doing for years at that point. Um, you know, no diversity, very little people of color as leaders in the space. Um, and that was an issue <laughs> for mm-hmm. me. And then kind of on the other side of that, the second thing that I noticed was that all of the these wonderful principles around online business and personal development were not like I wasn't seeing them in the in the nonprofit world. So really good business strategy around like innovation and being lean and all of these things were like, just not the, the nonprofit world was very much like, this is how we've always done it. And this is mm-hmm. just how it's going to mm-hmm. be. Um, and wanting to be a bridge, wanting to mm-hmm. kind of help people. Cause at this point I was starting to see some success with my consulting practice and I wanted to help some of the my friends, you know, locally people that I had been working with for years who were people with, you know, master's degrees and all these like experience, like all this kind of professional experience and curriculum designers and wanting to help them be able to start their own businesses. But knowing that they were not going to go out and do that because they thought that making money was bad. Mm -hmm. They thought that that, you know, business was so complicated and hard. And I was seeing that that just wasn't the case. And so I just wanted to take some of the best of what I was learning from this kind of startup entrepreneurship world that I was Mm -hmm. being exposed to um, and bring it into the social justice field and vice versa. I wanted to take some of the principles around social impact and equity and inclusion and, um, you know, injustice. And I wanted to bring it into the business space because I just saw so much opportunity for that exchange of ideas. Yep. Um, and that's kind of where, yeah, that's kind of where it really started is just kind of wanting to do that. And then the, the more I leaned in to entrepreneurship, to online business, to coaching, to personal development, I was, it was consistently reinforced that the issues with diversity, equity, and inclusion were so, um, they were so prevalent Right. That and and that I also had this really unique intersection of experiences that positioned me really well mm-hmm. to be one of the leaders, you know, driving that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, and I just kind of went all in. That's wonderful. No, it's wonderful and so important, right? Because when I think about when we learn strategies, let's say for business owners, and then we share it with our clients, we're actually replicating the bias that is handed to us. Right. And one of the things that you do really well is saying, 
some of the strategies that are recommended to be successful in business just don't work for, for everybody. Right. And, and it's, we have, I think we have a responsibility, right. As business owners, as service providers, um, to do justice for people's integrity, for people's humanity, um, and yeah. for the diversity of life experiences. And that is what I think. And you outline that really well in the book. I'm going to, I'm going to plug the book many times, Jamelessly throughout this <laughs> I mean, podcast. Not, you. you haven't asked me to, but I will do that gladly because you mentioned that in the book, um, about what is missing in the conversation. And so if people are missing in the conversation, obviously there's, uh, important elements of the conversation that are just unspoken. Right. Um, and 100%. That can, yeah, to- so that's what I think you do so well. And what I love about your life is you talk about, um, radically imagining a world that's different from what we created and you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that, that I'll add is that when, when you're trained in like adolescent youth development, um, not like nonprofit work, program design, all of these kinds of things, in particular, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you start to ask questions as part of your regular practice. What are we not seeing? Who's not at the table? Um, what are what are we assuming in this decision? Like this real practice of inquiry that when I so that it was so natural that when I started to be um, more in in business and entrepreneurship, I was bringing those questions that hadn't been asked. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is that I became this filter of, you know, lear- learning things from people who didn't have that kind of experience and asking those questions myself and filtering out like, okay, this is the stuff that's really embedded in whiteness and mm-hmm. toxic capitalism and oppression and exploitation. But here are the lessons that are worthy that if we start to like add some of the other things that we know, we really get something new and that it, it would like serve way more people. Right. It's wonderful. So you mentioned a few concepts there. And I think so everybody's on the same page. It would be important for us to have a shared definition of some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is equity, right? And yeah. the other anti-racism. Um, we can talk about toxic capitalism and liberatory leadership in a little bit, yeah. but let's start with some of the basics. Do you mind just giving your definition of those two concepts? Yeah, so equity is about the things that we do to help people get to the same place. And so I like to, to talk about equity in contrast with um, equality, which is something that we are all very familiar with. Equal is about everybody getting the same thing. Equity is about helping people get to a place where they have the same thing. Mm-hmm. Because just because you give people the same thing doesn't mean that they can use it the same way or that that's going to get them to the same places. What we know, if, if you know more than two people mm-hmm. in your life, you know that not every strategy works for every person the same way, right? Some people need a little bit more support to get to the same place. So right. equity is all about the things that we do to help people and to create environments and systems where people can get to the same place. And oftentimes, you know, on a grand scheme, the same place, this idea that, you know, we live in a world where people's outcomes are not predictable by their race and zip code means that, you know, that we all have access to a life where Mm -hmm. our basic needs are more than met, right? Mm -hmm. That we all have like 
housing and education and food and all, you know, all of the things that we need to just have good lives, um, enjoyable lives. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what equity is all about. And then so anti-racism are, is the things that we do, um, the practice that we have, the thing, the ideas that we uh, perpetuate that help to dismantle racism, right? Anything that, um, anything that creates the circumstances where um, people of color are disadvantaged and that is there's so many applications of, of that, just about everything is influenced by white supremacy and racism. Um, but so anti-racism is about the antidote yep. to racist belief and action and philosophy and ideas. Right. So it's not just not being racist. It's not participating in racist systems. It's actually dismantling racist systems. And I think exactly. just so everybody's on the same page, one thing that I've noticed is not everybody has the same idea what white supremacy means. So white supremacy, when some people hear it, they think of white hoods and Ku Klux Klan, but it's, right. it's way, way beyond that. Can you give us a quick definition of that? Yeah, I think white, you know, thinking of the white hoods and Ku Klux Klan, that's a manifestation of white supremacy, right? Like those are behaviors and practices that people take on because of white supremacy. White supremacy on its own is the idea that white people are just inherently better, smarter, stronger, more worthy of protection, more worthy of um of ideas and that and that everything that comes from white folks um is better right, right. is is and is the norm and so mm -hmm. everything else becomes judged in contrast to a culture of whiteness and so that is you know what what i love about that description is that if we allow it to now white supremacy is is a huge issue right and if we can think about it in this way that I just described, it actually takes out, I think, some of the anxiety around mm -hmm. it. Like, I think mm -hmm. it, it can just be this very practical thing. It's like, oh, all it means is that we are advantaging or placing in a, in a hierarchy, placing white people and white culture and white ideas ahead of everybody else. That's all. That's what it means. And then all of the other thing, all of the violence that comes from it really just comes from this idea that mm -hmm. white folks are, are better. And there's been so much across our history to reinforce that and to, um, you know, I mean, we've had whole sciences at one point that were created to try to convince people that white people based on, you know, their skulls or whatever, mm -hmm. we're, we're smarter people and just lies, right? Lies. Right. right. Um, but that have so much um, ramifications like in mm -hmm. our history. Absolutely. So that's what white, white supremacy is. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I want to just add in terms of oftentimes uh, completely unconscious, right? Like that's the oh, yeah. part about it. Not that you think it and you don't think it, it's somehow embedded subconsciously. And as an interculturalist, I remember going through that process of like, oh, being on time is a cultural construct, like punctuality. We just decided that, you know, five minutes was the polite range. Other cultures right. 
decided 15 minutes or four hours was the polite range, right? And and we see that we can accept that globally when we travel. Oh, that's yeah. the way they do it here, the way they do it there, right? But when it comes yeah. to something where it feels part of our identity, it can feel really threatening, but the same ideas apply. We just, some people got together and agreed that this is the right way. That's it. Right? Yeah. And, and the other thing is that like, even when this is a great example, even when folks, because you don't have to be a white person to buy into white supremacist ideas, right? Like you can have any, anyone can. But the idea that when we go, let's say you adopt that punctuality as like the standard, right? If you go somewhere else and you say, oh, that's just how they do it here. And you accept that you still, you're, you still are kind of putting this, um, you know, we do it the right way. Yes. And here it's like, it's mm-hmm. different, but right? it's mm-hmm. not, but, but our way is actually the right way. It's, it's, it's usually not like, oh, we're different. Mm-hmm. We change, mm-hmm. you know, like I am the one that's different or maybe but, there is no right way. Maybe they're all just different ways. Mm-hmm. And what we should be doing is being in relationship with people when we schedule meetings to talk about like, what's the buffer here? <laughs> like, am yep. I, is, is it time sensitive? Is it, you know, like, being in more in, in more close relationships so that you don't bump into some of the the issues that people face when they're holding someone else to a standard that is really just, you know, a personal preference. Right. And what do you agree on, right? As an intercultural right. community. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, we could talk about that the entire time. There's a lot of layers there. I want to go a little bit more into your book and how you talk about anti-racist business specifically. Well, one thing I want to just mention is you talked about when we have processes that are, let's say, anti-racist or or equitable, when we do something that sort of um, creates fair play, like the image that you and I talked about in a class was looking at a baseball field and how Mm -hmm. high is the fence and what do you get to stand on to see? You know, the tall person doesn't need anything to stand on, but the shorter person does. When we, when we make accommodations that are equitable, actually everybody benefits. Yeah. Every, everybody benefits. So, and the way that I talk about this in the book is I'd, I'd like to kind of give this metaphor of an elevator, right? Everyone, most, most people have been in an elevator. Um, Elevators are, required in most places in buildings that are over, you know, two uh, stories high at commercial buildings, especially so that people who cannot go up and down the stairs get, can get access to the upper floors. Right. But everybody takes the elevator, right? It's not only Mm -hmm. for people who cannot go up and down the stairs, everyone takes the elevator. And in fact, having the elevator in the building so that everyone can use it if they want to use it or need to use it, improves the experience of the building. And that is the case, I think, across the board. When you start to think about building a company, a business, an institution, you know, whatever size, even a nonprofit, really anything that gathers people, when you start thinking about how people will engage in the space and what you're going to need to provide so that they have equitable access that they can fully participate, it makes the experience better for everyone because Mm -hmm. everyone now can be contributing at a capacity that they wouldn't be able to contribute if you had these like inequities. And I think that that's 
you know, when we look at any of the data around companies that are diverse, that have better outcomes and, you know, better problem solving, like there's all these, all this research around the benefits of it. What, what is true is that you get that, you only get those kinds of benefits when the environment isn't just Mm -hmm. diverse, but that is equitable, right? Like it's the, it's, it's not just that people showed up, it's that people are contributing. Right. And so if you if you don't have an environment or if you only have an environment where people get to show up but they can't contribute, you don't get any of the benefits right. of, you know, kind of having that diverse equitable space. Absolutely. And that's very connected to the point that you make about business is personal. Um, 100%. And, and we're taught that it's not right. It's and I can't tell you how many conversations I've been in with people who say, well, it's business. It's not personal. And you break that down. You look at that myth and debunk it. Can you share just briefly about what you mean when you say business is personal? Just business. It's not personal. Personal is probably the biggest lie that is told in one of the biggest, most frequent lies that is told in business. Because we look around all over the place and we see that that is just not true. There's evidence that that is not true everywhere, right? So for example, we do things in our companies. Tip A lot of times when people are starting businesses, they're building businesses based on a passion or a personal thing that they feel connected to. And so they want to go out in the world and solve a problem or fill a gap in the market. It's something connected to them personally. When they're building a team, they're looking for people who are not just skilled, but who they are going to like to spend time with, right? Mm-hmm. They believe it. We get to know our colleagues. We know our, our colleagues, partners, and children. We ask about the weekends, right? We go and have make business deals over dinner after talking about, you know, like all kinds of personal things. So businesses extremely personal. Also, the implications of business mm-hmm. are personal. If When you show up, it's it's only personal because it pays your bills, pays yeah, your rent, right. One, pays your family, 100%. right? Like it, it helps fund if you want, it's, you know, further education. Like there's nothing more personal than that. There's nothing more personal than that. And, and that when we hire employees, especially if we're paying people like you know, full-time salaries and benefits and vacation time, our decisions are mm-hmm. very personal for mm-hmm. that, for the team, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and, the, and the environment that we provide for them are extremely personal. If you've ever worked at a toxic work mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. and you go home, you know that that is having a personal effect mm-hmm. on like the rest of your day and how you're able to show up for the rest of your life. If you're in a toxic work environment, alternatively, if you work in a place that's very liberatory and open and flexible and connected, it impacts how you're able to be, you know, in in the rest of your life. Business is only not personal. I have consistently seen this. It is only not personal when someone who holds power is making a decision that negatively impacts someone who doesn't have power. Or, or, or someone is being advised to, to do something, you know, and I hear in the context of coaching, like, oh, you have to make that decision. Don't worry about it. It's not personal. It's just business. It's, it's said as I think the intent behind it is to ease the tension 
for the person who has to make that decision because they know that the decision that they're about to make make is going to have a personal effect. It's it is exactly personal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And I think I I don't think that we have to abandon the personal relationship of business to make hard decisions. We have if you if you have a business or if you're a leader in business, hard decisions is part of what we do, but because we have perpetuated this myth that business is not personal, I think it gives people permission and a little, like a little bit more of a a ruthlessness around choices that they have to make. And it gives them a cognitive out. Like it gives them this out that they're like, Oh, I actually don't have to worry about that because that's not my responsibility. It's just business. Right. Absolutely. But what if we didn't, right? What if we, what if we say, Oh, this is personal. I still have to make the choice, but what, how does that impact the way I show up for that choice? How does it impact the way that I communicate about that choice? How does it communicate or how does it impact the way that I create um, a buffer around this decision to lessen the impact? If we allow business to be personal and if we see the personal impact and, and kind of personal relationships in our hard decisions, we show up for them differently. Yep, totally. We we allow humanity. 100%. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I think you do the same thing when we talk about um, capitalism, that when people criticize capitalism, they're not actually criticizing capitalism. They're c- criticizing toxic capitalism. Yes, yes. Right? And because capitalism, like you said, how about just commerce, right? Like, how about we just buy stuff and trade stuff and give money and value, right? So can, right? because I think when we, when people hear the word, when they talk about capitalism, there's fear there. Like, wait a minute. So, you know, if your family, my, my father helped get me through college, thanks to trading services, you know what I mean? Like, so people take capitalism so personally. So can you tell the difference between when you say when people talk about capitalism, when they're attacking actually toxic capitalism and what you mean by just commerce. Yeah. I totally get the, um, the, the feelings around capitalism. It is complicated. And of all of the book, that chapter was the, took the longest for me to write because of the research that was involved in that chapter. And because of the work and intention that I wanted to put into translating, Mm -hmm. because it's, it is, a lot of language. There's a lot of words and a lot of policies and a lot of things. And what I was able to distill is that, you know, basically capitalism is, it's a terrible word because it, it includes way too many things that are not, oftentimes that are not similar, right? So capitalism can be and is just an individual person's ability, like legal right to start a business and charge. Right. Just that. Just understand that that is not the case in some places that you just, you can't just open your doors, hang a sign, you know, and just like, and be open for business. That's not the case everywhere. So the fact that we can do that, that those of us who can, that we are able to, is a function of capitalism. Wonder, wonderful things, wonderful opportunities. Now, the problem is, is that people's ability to consolidate wealth 
and exploit other people and um, not pay their fair share, right? Like not contribute to society in the in ways that other people are. That is also a function of capitalism, right? So when people say, oh, like I can't stand capitalism, capitalism is the root of all evil. It's the idea that we do have laws that allow some people to exploit other people. I think we, I just think that it's really important that we're clear on the parts that we want to, that, that are most insidious and that we are clear about the protections and rights that having an economic system that allows us to just start businesses and, and take care of ourselves independent from, you know, the state, that that is, that there are good things in that. So this is why I'm a pretty firm stance on, you know, I, I don't identify as an anti-capitalist. The problem with anti-capitalism as I see it is that it doesn't solve for some of the social problems that I personally am most concerned about. So for example, just if we, you know, threw capitalism away and went to another economic system, um, we still would have racism. We would still have white supremacy. We would still see disparities. Like I certainly don't trust and have no reason to trust that if we change our economic system to one that is more socialist in nature, that we still wouldn't have people exploiting their power. I have no reason to, it is actually likely that we will continue to see that. So I've seen that in Europe. I've seen very socialistic um, societies economically have great examples of obvious racism, right? So you're right that it's not the economic system that would automatically change another operating system. And so you say just commerce, like it just commerce. It's just an exchange of services for value. And and this idea of just commerce is both this like practical, like exchange of goods and services, right? That, that, that is important, but also this bigger, you know, I am, I imagine it. And this is something that I say in the book, you know, that there's an element of this, and this is very inspired by the work of Adrienne Marie Brown, who says that people who are engaged in liberation work, that there's an element of science fiction to it because we're imagining what these things could be, right? We're taking from what we know and, you know, best practices and we're like advancing work forward. We need a quantum leap, but while we have in terms of our tools is to, is to make progress like one step at a time. And so what I'm kind of future casting is, um, is this, idea of just just commerce potentially as an economic system that centers justice, right? That centers, that centers justice and creates an opportunity for people to have businesses, to make money, to live, to do all the things that we need to do um, with an economy, but are measuring the success of that economy by a whole holistic set of, you know, of indicators that would include, sure, how much money is moving around the economy, but also, you know, what are the racial disparities embedded in that? What are, what does our education system look like? You know, what does, um, what does our criminal justice system look like? Like, how is that impacting um, our economy? So looking, having a way bigger perspective on like, evaluating the health and wellness of a nation 
where we, uh, yeah, where we're looking at far more than just like the stock market, right. <laughs> you know, and just, you know. And I think when I, when I look at that and I look at the de- what I've learned with our work together and then what I see what you mentioned in the book, that it's, you know, as a solopreneur, or individual business owner, it's more like, what are some of the practices that I've just accepted that are actually toxic? Let's just say like an NDA, you know, or like a silencing agreement of you can't work for this person afterwards, or you can't do this, or you can't say this. That is more on the spectrum of toxic and less on the spectrum of the human side, right? Totally. Um, And I've been in situations where people that have worked for me were unable, like we couldn't work together for a period of time because they said they couldn't work for this person and that person. And like it restricts someone's employment opportunities, right? 100%. And some of these are like so oppressive. I've seen cases where people were asked to sign non-competes pretty broad non-competes for a number of years. Yeah. And in some cases it's tied to like a severance package. Like if you, you take this severance package and for two years you can't work, you know, in this field and that if you can't work in the field that you've invested your education in, like what are you to do? Right. right. It's nonsense. It is rooted in the, I, th- I think that those kinds of things are rooted in some of the worst parts of us. Right. And that's, and that is where, until you question that, you just accept it. You're like, yeah, it feels icky, but that's what everybody else does. Don't ever work for my competitor. <laughs> right. Like don't work in the field, which is hard. Yeah. So that's, I think that's important. And I want to just make sure, cause I know our time is kind of, um, getting a little bit tight here. Yes. I wanted to make sure that we talk about, um, your bigger vision. Just briefly, you talk about liberatory leadership and that kind of en- encompasses, what all of this is about, whether it's a business or you're a service provider or an NGO, how do you define liberatory leadership? So again, this is one of those areas that is like really formative, right? And so I think about liberatory leadership right now as the this way of being the style of leadership and style of organization that centers not only your own liberation, but the liberation of other people. And so what you seek out, and so to people who are, for me personally, and people who are kind of engaged in this work very intentionally, the questions we're asking is like, how do I make decisions about my business, about the way I work in my business, the way my team works in the business that maximize opportunities for people to maintain their agency and their self-determination, right? And that that still allow the company to function at this high level and to fulfill on our obligations, right? But that the environment doesn't have to resort to toxic, oppressive practices, workplace practices um, in an effort to quote unquote control like the team. Right. And so one of the things that I uh, think about is, um, you know, how do we manage outcomes instead of managing people? How do we create schedules and ways of working that allow people to kind of take care of themselves during the day, whether those are, you know, they have kids at home or appointments, like all, like how, like how are we most flexible 
while maintaining just this high degree of like, or without compromising our, our, the way that we function um, and continuing to call into question, like, and really think about where, why am I making decisions the way I'm making them? Where did they come from? What am I assuming? You know, just continuing to build, bring that inquiry into the way that we not just lead our businesses, but also lead our life. Absolutely. And my guess, and I would love to see some research on this um, over time, my guess that those who are working within a liberatory leadership framework are more committed, more engaged, maybe healthier, um, maybe stay longer, retention. You know, I, 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 my guess yeah. is that when you, when you um, allow someone's full humanity, um, that they show up more at work. It's that simple. I would, I would make that guess as well. I think what is hard about it is that it is a, this is a slow process, right? Yes. And so again, work um, because of a culture of whiteness that really prioritizes and privileges and kind of holds up as the standard, standard this like hustle culture, the fastest person to win the race, whoever can make the most money, the quickest, right? Leverage everything, scale everything, be efficient. That all there are, there are parts of all of those things that can really interrupt equity and really rest on practices that are, that, that do lean into that, like exploitation, oppression, power and control ways of leading. Um, and they're so normalized. They're so normalized. Um, so liberatory leadership is about being in the practice of like, again, undoing all those things and finding more ways to work and lead and motivate others and create business systems that allow for that kind of maximum agency and flexibility. Yeah. I hope that we look back on this in 30 years and go, I can't believe that we used to be there. Right. I hope that it's yeah. just like a no brainer, you know, and 30 years, when I look at history, 30 years is, is nothing. Right. But I'm hoping that right. we see a shift. Um, and I know, I think because I've lived in a European context for a long time, I know it is possible to live with so much more balance. Right. I have seen that, you know, there's always yeah. these jokes about, um, the out of office notices from someone in Europe is I'm camping until September, you know, see you later. And in the U S it's like, I'm having kidney <laughs> surgery, but you can reach me on my phone. <laughs> so yeah. I know there's different ways of doing it, but we just all have to, we have to, um, have systems in which we're given permission to do that. Yeah. Um, and for the leaders, yeah. I just want to say that like the, mm -hmm. the part of this that really like requires good intentional leadership is that this, this way of being has to be architected, right? So mm -hmm. for example, I was with a client recently who was talking about like vacation time in their team and how someone on their team never takes vacation time. And I was like, well, what's your responsibility in that? Mm -hmm. Right? Like as the leader of the company, you can passively say, okay, everyone just don't, you know, we want to support work-life balance and make sure you put in mm -hmm. your vacation time, like really passively, or you can sit down with your team and say, I don't have vacation time requests. You know, it's mid-year, like mm -hmm. from you, you, and you, I need those today. Let's sit down and look at our calendars and figure mm -hmm. out when this is going to happen. Yeah. Right. And like really leading that and creating the space for it and supporting people's decisions. Like 
it's it's not enough to say like, oh yeah, like I want people to use their vacation time. Like you actually have to go in and support people in 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 executing it. Mm-hmm. It's so much more. There's so much more nurturing, I think, because you are nurturing a culture. You are creating. It is a culture. And we all have to shed what we bring with us as expectations from a place of fear, from a place of experience, from a place of our own cultural norms. Right. And I think that's one thing that as a leader in my own company, I had to learn, like, I have to invest there to nurture that culture Mm -hmm. in my community. I can't just recruit well. (laughs) I have to then nurture that culture once we're there. Um, I want to make sure we have a couple of minutes to just focus on you for a second. One of the things that I always do with, with guests is ask about their own places of being in transit. And, um, you know, I talk about ATT, which is ambitious transformation in transit. I'd love to hear from you. um, Where are you in transit right now in your life, in your work or wherever you feel like sharing? Yeah, so I just announced a year-long transformation project, actually. Um, and so what is what has become clear in the last couple months is that I really need to move into a space where um, I have the time to invest in like creative projects and more idea generation, more writing, instead of... Um, being so embedded in the day-to-day of, of the company, we're just kind of at that point. And what I, cause I've seen people go through this kind of transition where, you know, the demands on their time are increasing, their company is growing. And what sometimes happens, I've seen this a number of times, is that it they get the entrepreneur, the leader of the company gets too busy. And all of a sudden it seems like they've disappeared from their company and they're not like seeing clients anymore and they've hired a bunch of staff. And so it see and and that can often leave people feel like the rug was pulled from under them, like that they you know maybe they bought something thinking one person was going to deliver it and they didn't, or like the person um, is so day to day in operations of the company that if they're gone now things are falling through the cracks and you know they just didn't realize like how much of an impact that would have. Um, so I know that that's where that that's kind of what is happening. And so instead of just seeing what happens and (laughs) writing it out, I'm being really intentional. And so I've told people, I've I've written to our email community, I'll be talking about it a lot this year, is that I'm going on a one-year transition plan so that by the fall of next year, actually September 11th of next year, which is the the 10-year anniversary of the company, that... um, I am going to remove myself from the day-to-day operations and like teaching in our certification program, right? So right now I deliver a lot of the teaching in our coach track. Um, I see a lot of clients during the week still. I'm very involved in our consulting clients and I want to reduce the number of hours I spend coaching within a year by like 70%. 70, between 50 and 75% of my coaching hours, coaching, teaching, facilitating will be cut. So I'll have about 25% of what I do right now that will be dedicated to um, a mentorship that I run called the Liberatory Leader Mentorship. And so I'll, I'll continue to do that and like a couple of strategic um, kind of uh, coaching partnerships with our, our bigger, like more more complex projects. 
Um, and then we're going to kind of train our, not train, but transition one of our team members into more of an operations director role to kind of run the day to day. We'll add some teaching staff to our, you know, we'll add faculty members to teaching. So that's a big transition that I'll be navigating and that I really want to do transparently over the course of the year. So, so this year will be a lot of that, a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of all hands on deck. Um, and then I'll take a eight week sabbatical at the end of the year. So once we have, we'll have like a big 10 year anniversary celebration, and then I'll take two months off. Um, and when I come back again, it'll be in that role of visionary, creative, kind of strategic thinker, um, still CEO, but with with someone who's really kind of running the day-to-day operations so that I can kind of be thinking about growth and doing more speaking and writing and things like that. So that is, yeah, that's a year-long transformation that we're <laughs> just kind of rolling out. What are you doing to shape that so it's going in the direction that you envision, like for you personally, yeah. like as a person? So... What that looks like is we've like rearranged this our schedule so that I have so that we have I have really clear times that I'm like teaching and with clients, my availability is like really clear. And then we have the days that I'm I'm not. The task is gonna be that when I'm not, that you know, we try to that the team tries to kind of run things without me. So like kind of putting these scaffolds in place, communicating with clients to set the expectation with clients really over serving the clients that we're going to have this year because the idea we're about to graduate our first class of students like officially and so we'll have some of those people are going into not just a couple of people who have been through our program are going into like a fellowship so that they get like mentoring and training to become faculty members so like really having this intentional training of people to be able to deliver the content with this clear intent that they're going to like kind of take over these classes. So that's a big one. Um, Also being real intentional about my downtime. So I started something a couple months ago where I, I email our community every Friday and I'm like, Hey, here's my weekend practice. Like, this is kind of what I'm doing. I'm reporting out on like, if I worked too much or planned work or like what I'm and what's great about those is that people have started to write us back and kind of share what they're doing on the weekends and just having again being really intentional about how we're spending time because there was a couple months ago where I was like oh I've worked every weekend for the last that's, yeah like, that's hard too much and like I'm just right. I just wasn't being intentional about it um so yeah just increasing the intentionality around capacity and space um, you know, planning to do more train the trainer type activities this year and really getting clear with the team on like, what are the things like where they have ownership and power, what I don't need to be involved in, you know, really training people to think, to understand how I make decisions so that they Mm -hmm. don't have to ask me to make them so that they are, they just kind of have more of a roadmap for how to decide and how to kind of, you know, make decisions, not the way that I would make them, but the way that are that in a way that is um, aligned with our company values and like with what the company requires them to do. It's massive. So the, the one question I was going to ask is what's 
considered ambitious for you right now. And for me, that whole story feels very ambitious. It's ambitious. Yeah. It's very ambitious. It's a little scary too, because this, um, it's ambitious technically, right? It's a big lift. Um, and then like emotionally, there's this part of it that's ambitious that is going to require me to really um, trust a system, like trust the system that we build to continue to work without me, right? And I think in in coaching, in this, you know, this world that we live in, that we work in, um, it's so easy to build something that just becomes all about like the personal brands yeah. of the yeah. person. Yeah. The intention was always that I, you know, that this company would be something that was team led. Um, and although there are things happening in my life that are definitely more that kind of live in like the personal brand thing. Essentially what we're talking about over this year is separating my personal brand from like the company brand. Uh, there's some ambitiousness around just like the, the emotional part of that. Like I'm going to have to let some things go. Trudy, you're like the head chef of a <laughs> high quality slow food restaurant, oh, right? You're that. so <laughs> intentional in the selection of your ingredients um, what you'd be serving people, their experience, the quality that comes out of your kitchen, so to speak. I mean, that's what you get. And I think you have such a unique combination of the equity lens um, and the business lens and the coaching lens that I see why you do consulting in other fields as well, because that adds so much value, um, long-term sustainable impact. And this is something yeah. I, di I didn't say to you. Um, when I started reading this book, I actually teared up uh, and it shocked, I was like surprised, like, why am I tearing up? I, I've read this material, but I think what it was is I realized that our work together changed the trajectory of how I show up um, with with my the people that I lead inside my team, um, with my clients and, and how I want to engage also with other businesses. And it is one of those changes that, like I said, it's not a caterpillar to butterfly overnight. It's one of these small cellular things, but I know yeah. it's in, in five years and 10 years, it is the trajectory has been shifted for me. Um, so I just want to thank you for that as well. It's well, really amazing you. that you're doing. Thank you. I know that our time is coming to a close. Um, I'll make sure that people can find your book and your podcast and your website and your um, coaching resources in the show notes. But please go ahead and tell people the best way that they can learn more about you and your work. The best way is to come and hang out with me on Instagram. So come mm -hmm. follow me on Instagram send me a DM. I check my DMs and respond to them. Like definitely the best place to come and just start to get familiar with the community. That's wonderful. So thank you, Trudy, for today. It's meant the world to me to have you here. And thank you, thank you to for those having who are, me. Thank you for those who are listening. Um, this is a lot. If this is new to you, if, if you are new to this context, um, I encourage you to check out Trudy's book, her, her podcast, her Instagram, all of that, and, and hang out in this space. You're going to learn a lot in a way that is um, truly transformational. You're here with me, Sunday Bean, with In Transit. And I'm going to leave you with a quote that I found at the start of Trudy's book by Angela Davis. And I know it's something that Trudy lives by based on what I've seen. You have to act as if it were possible to radically change the world. And you have to do it all the time.